I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. It is really good to be with you today. Um, Wow, we are past Trinity Sunday now, and uh, we're headed into just the common time. And this is a weird day, I think, as you get looking into this, if you haven't picked up your Bible yet from last week, it feels like we're just kind of heading into opposition to Jesus out of nowhere. Um, and we'll, Alan will take a look here at, at why we do this in the Revised Common Lectionary. But uh, turn your Bibles. We are in Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. Alan, explain what's going on. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, the the common le- the lectionary kind of leaves us in a bit of a lurch here because we find at the beginning of this passage that Jesus is said to be out of his mind, so much so that his family seek to bring him home. We find scribes from Jerusalem and a coming and opposing Jesus, claiming that he's possessed by a demon. But there's been nothing in our survey of Mark's gospel this year to prepare us for this level of opposition. And part of the problem is that much of the intervening material in Mark's gospel is reserved for years when Easter comes much later so that the season of Epiphany is longer. And we just didn't cover those passages this year. And that's sometimes how it works. So here we are. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. In this, so continue on. Yeah, well, and so if you go back and you look at that part of Mark and the material that that the common that, that the lectionary skips for this year, you find the origins of Jesus' conflict with the Jewish religious leaders, both the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes were scripture scholars; they were experts in the interpretation of the Torah, and the Pharisees were devoted to the teachings of the scribes and were devoted to the keeping of the Torah in all of life, and. Of course, when they saw Jesus doing things they perceived to be contrary to the Torah, they took great offense at him. Let me ask you a question. It takes us a little off pace here, but I want to ask because I think it will go through others' minds because we don't read about Sadducees here. Mm -hmm. Where would Sadducees fit within this descriptive context? Well, the Sadducees were located in Jerusalem. Their their base of power was was the temple. They okay. were the Sadducees were basically the priests, the chief priests, and and that was and so logically their base of power was the temple. The Pharisees were were more based in the synagogue, and so you find Pharisees sort of um, scattered throughout more of Jesus' ministry. Uh, you don't really see Jesus encounters with the Sadducees until he comes until to Jerusalem. he comes to Jerusalem, and that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I, I I know that goes through people's minds, mm-hmm. and you want we want to get those those figures straight. So yeah, yeah. very good. Okay, moving on then. Now, so ex- examples. If you if we're just going to survey, you know, Mark two and three up to this point, you know, we find Jesus forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man uh, brought to him, and of course, in response, they accuse him of blasphemy, saying, "Who can forgive sins but God alone?" And Jesus declares, "The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins." And then he proved it by healing the man. Um, And we find Jesus calling Levi a tax collector and eating with tax collectors and sinners, which violated their views of what it meant to remain pure in God's sight. Um, They didn't practice fasting. 
some of Jesus' disciples uh, ate the heads of wheat while they were walking mm-hmm. through a field on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees accused them of breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus declared in response that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so finally, in the first part of chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a crippled hand on the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, perhaps the synagogue at Capernaum. And as a result, Mark says that the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So, so already at the you know at the beginning yeah. of chapter three they are they are conspiring to destroy well, they're, Jesus. They, they're seeing what he's doing and they don't like what they he's doing. Well, and yeah. and we'll see later on they they see it as blasphemy. Yes, and they see it as 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 an offense worthy of stoning. Okay, so yeah, and so now we're at today's passage. So let's just we have a context, but what happens today? Well, we begin and and what we have here is what is known as a Markan intercalation. Or better, <laughs> better put, a Markin sandwich. That's right. Mark Mark tends to sandwich stories. So yeah. he start he starts off with one story, he inserts another story, and then he completes yes. the first story. And if you read this and you're not familiar with the Markin sandwich and you thought, what? Now you know. Now it'll yeah. make more sense for you. There you go. Um, and so it starts off by Mark mentioning that those with him came to retrieve him because they were saying he was out of his mind. Uh, and in the English Bible tradition, this um, wh- whoever these people, those with him are, is interpreted variously, ranging from the more literal his own people, which is very vague, doesn't make any sense, to relatives. Most English Bibles either render it friends, that's the King James Version Mm -hmm. and the American Standard Version, and the Message Translation, interestingly, or family, and the vast majority of of standard English translations render it family. Alan, what do you like? I think family. Okay. Okay. I think family. I trust. I trust Alan's own interpretation here. So well, it's not just mine, um, and and really, technically, the identity of those with him is not specified. But the reference to his mother and brothers coming at the end of the sandwich, so to speak, in Mark three mm-hmm. one thirty one through thirty five, I think argues pretty clearly in favor of taking it as a reference to Jesus' family. Now, I think there's a reason why some translators were reticent to. Um, um, attribute this to Jesus' family. I mean, think about it. In the Catholic tradition, you've got right. the veneration of Mary. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was the head of the church in Jerusalem. Right. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was one of the authors of one of the books of the New Testament. There were a lot of theological reasons in the Catholic tradition for sort of um, uh, glossing over the idea that Jesus' family might have been might have been well, yeah. misunderstood him and even opposed him. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it, it is hard to wrap your brain around. I, I agree. Yeah. Now, the, even in the new RSV, however, you know, there, you find some of this, some of the remnants of this because it translates the next phrase, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. And the Greek text simply has elegon, they were saying. It doesn't specify who. Mm. And in the context, the most logical antecedent of they would be Jesus' Jesus family. family. And so Mark seems to imply or state that Jesus' own family thought he'd lost his senses, probably due to the widespread reports that they were receiving of his healings and exorcisms. And the implication, I think, is clear that they don't understand either his message or his mission, and so they're opposed to him, especially 
because you've got Mark, this Mark and Sandwich. Right. So you've got Jesus' family, and then you've got the scribes, and, and they're both opposing Jesus. Well, right? I, I think it's very human for the family to oppose Surely, Jesus. If you of put course. yourself into the context of the time, and all of a sudden your son or brother's making waves with the officials, that puts you at risk, that puts puts you on the outside. Yep. You just don't want, you don't want him in your daily life to have a troublemaker in your family. I, well, and it's remember, very human. remember in Mark's gospel, we don't have an infancy narrative, right? So we don't have any of the background that, that is given in Matthew's gospel. I think the fullest background is given in Luke's gospel. Right. And, and you don't have any of that information, you know, Mary treasured all these things up in her heart you know, all that kind of stuff. You don't have any of that in Mark's gospel. Right. Right. So, yeah. It might, and as difficult as this has been for people to grasp throughout the history of the church, that Jesus' own family would oppose him, it, it serves in Mark's gospel here to, assert, to introduce even more stringent opposition from the Jewish religious leaders. There were, he, Mark says, there were scribes from Jerusalem who were saying much worse things about Jesus than that he's lost his mind. And specifically, they say that he has Beelzebul or that he was possessed by Beelzebul, and that he was casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, let's start with Beelzebul, because this is a this is a word that occurs in the New Testament only seven times, and six of the seven are in this passage in Mark and in its parallels. So it's all it's all in the Gospels focused around this this accusation that Jesus from the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus was casting out demons by the Prince of Demons. Now. Unfortunately, because it's such a rare word, it's difficult to know what it means right. and how to interpret it. Many, and, and traditionally it has been rendered Beelzebub, who is the Philistine god that Azariah, the king of Judah, mm-hmm. sent messengers to inquire regarding his recovery from an injury in 2 Kings chapter mm-hmm. 1. Mm-hmm. But this identification is no means clear. Some also would say that it may refer to the Canaanite god Baal, who was sort of the chief rival mm-hmm. to Yahweh in 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 much of the Hebrew Bible, and and Zebul would mean uh, would 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 describe Baal as a prince, and so um, but but again, it's it's just really difficult to understand who or what this is referring to, and it's probably best just to transliterate it as Beelzebul. I you know I wonder if it's almost like a. <laughs> Like a a, a a a slanderous nickname, kind of a kind of a someone mocking a mocking kind of name that maybe takes a lot of things together. Well, and some even suggest that maybe maybe this was sort of a neologism. It was something that that they just kind of made up on the Could spot be. because be. you just don't have much background for Beelzebul in in mm-hmm. the literature of the day. Now, what is clear in the context is that Beelzebul was considered a demon and perhaps even the ruler of demons. And it's also clear, I think, that the scribes were accusing Jesus of acting under the influence of what was called a familiar spirit in the Hebrew Bible and therefore deserved to be stoned to death. And so um, that part of it is 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 a piece that is not often pointed out, but but they're making a very serious accusation mm-hmm. against Jesus here, and um, they're basically claiming that he is he is um, 
you know, he's violating the clear commands of Leviticus against um, uh, people who acted as mediums and people who were possessed mm-hmm. by familiar mm-hmm. spirits. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the Mishnah clearly called for a person like that to be stoned to death. Okay. And it's that kind of an interesting space, and I'm visualizing it in my mind of this person's really evil, and we're going to attach this really yep. bad name, maybe so bad that we gave him his own name. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we see that. I mean, that still happens in culture today. Absolutely. There are some accusations that all you have to do is make the accusation. And it doesn't matter whether you're innocent or guilty. Just being accused of something, you're done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is, I think this was their tactic. This is what they were trying to do. Well, yeah. And it makes sense. It makes sense. All right. Moving on. Yeah. So, in response, then, Jesus basically just calls into question the logic of their proposition by asking, how can Satan cast out Satan? And so apparently, you know, there is a presupposition that Satan and Beelzebul and the prince of demons are all the same. Um, We need to talk about that further. But, um, you know, he elaborates on this just logical point that how can Satan cast out Satan by speaking to them in parables, Mm -hmm. Mark says. Or perhaps better we might say he was speaking figuratively, Adela Yarborough-Collins and Harold Atridge call them comparisons in their commentary on Mark. Oh, I think okay. that's a good translation. Okay. They use comparisons. And so he begins by referring to what may be considered, I think, what we call truisms mm-hmm. here. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and the house divided against itself cannot stand. Mm-hmm. And so, again, based on these logical observations, Jesus draws the conclusion that if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. Mm-hmm. So Jesus uses logic then to refute their accusation that he was casting out demons by the power of the ruler yeah, of demons. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. And it's interesting that in, in the parallel passage in, in Matthew 12, Jesus also kind of presses the Pharisees by asking them, how do their disciples cast out demons? So apparently the Phar- there were Pharisees out there who were, who were casting out right. demons as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things I think we need to understand here is that this text shows the variety and fluidity of the language for what was considered the demonic in that time. You've got Beelzebul, mm-hmm. you've got the prince of demons, you've got Satanas, all used in the same context, mm-hmm. um, sort of synonymously here. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the term Shatan is simply a word meaning an adversary or an enemy in general. It can be used of anybody. Mm-hmm. But it got attached to this personification of evil because it's found in Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3 uh, for a member of the heavenly court who acts like an accuser. Mm-hmm. And this may be something that we're not really familiar with, but in, there are places in, in the Hebrew Bible where God seems to preside over a heavenly court. And the Shatan, he's called the Shatan yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in these contexts. Uh, is is the one who acts as an accuser. Mm-hmm. Now, in it's it, the only place where Shatan could possibly be a personal name is in First Chronicles twenty one one, where uh, it is said that Satan provoked David to take a census of Israel, and that's the only place where we can where we where we find any sort of antecedent to the idea of Satan mm-hmm. as a personification of evil in the Hebrew Bible. And I think there's a reason for that. I think part of the reason is because in the Hebrew Bible, God's sovereignty is absolute. I was going to say, God's sovereignty does not allow for Satan. It, it, that's very clear. I mean, God, God's sovereignty allows for evil spirits. God's sovereignty, I mean, you see that. But there is no room for dualism exactly, in the Hebrew Bible. Exactly. There is one God, and that God is the only one who rules in 
doesn't have it exactly. In yeah. Um, so that's a part of the part of the issue I think we have to understand. And so what we see then is that in the Jewish literature of the time, there were a variety of names for the prince of evil: Azazel, Mastema, Belial. Are, are some of the most common ones that we find in the, in the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature of the time. And, and really, satanas in the Greek text is a transliteration from Hebrew, shatan. And, and so, as a result, even, we find that even the Septuagint doesn't use uh, satanas, and the Greek New Testament doesn't use Satanas. Uh, the Greek New Testament primarily uses Hadiabolos, or it speaks of, of, of the tempter, or it speaks of the evil one. So it uses more descriptive terms. It doesn't use this sort of name, Satan, that came to be attached to this uh, prince of evil um, in the course mm-hmm. of, of, of the Christian tradition. So I, in my opinion, I think this reflects the background that the Jewish thought about the demonic really began to develop during the time of the exile under the influence of Persian culture in in general and probably in specifically the Zoroastrian religion in in specific because Zoroastrianism did have a good God and an an evil evil God God. and they are co-equal and they are they are fighting against each other other. and and they are striving against each other and so this then this then begins sort of the the development of that kind of thinking that led to apocalyptic theology yeah and it makes sense because when you are and when you're enmeshed in another culture which they were in Babylon you are exposed to it and so you have to as you're doing you have to think how does this fit in context with what I know right. and we see that throughout scripture we yep. know that so yep. this makes a lot of sense um, to me and I think it, it it's consistent with what you've pres- yeah I mean proposed. if you start with the Hebrew Bible there's really no room for um, a a a sort of spiritual being who is viewed as on the same level of well, God there is no such thing in the Genesis creation stories there is this serpent well, the serpent, but, but the, the serpent a crea- is a creature. Exactly. And That's more wily different. than any other creature. Exactly. <laughs> more crafty than any other creature in the Hebrew. So, so the serpent is a creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no room for, for an equal God, sort of, that's, it's, that's an evil right. personification of evil. And so I know this is, it's a bit controversial to say this um, because many don't, don't agree with this, but I would say that the idea, the understanding of Satan was still very fluid in the New Testament era. Some would argue that it's very clear and it's already fully developed. I don't agree with that. And in fact, Yaroslav Pelikan in his, in his work on the uh, emergence of the Catholic tradition in, in the Christian tradition, five-volume work that he has, he points out that it was really um, the, the, the writings of Tertullian and Athanasius and Origen that really began to develop sort of Christian um, thinking about evil and demons, mm-hmm. really in response to the experience of sin and temptation. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was more of, of a development that, that came out of their understanding of sin and temptation mm-hmm. exactly. in about the third century was begin- when it began to, to crystallize. So I would, again, I would say the, the, the concept that most people presuppose today right. 
It's not in the New Testament. No. There are ideas, but it's, the terminology itself is very fluid. Right. You know, you have Satanas, you have Diabolos, you have the tempter, you have the evil one, you have other phrases like that, the enemy, you know, right. in, in throughout the New Testament. But it hasn't yet gotten to the place where most people today presuppose, you know, a fully developed mm-hmm. theology of Satan. Right. Moving on. What's next? Well, Jesus then proceeds to use an analogy that seems to follow from the previous comparisons. You know, he had said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so he goes from that to say, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man Mm -hmm. in verse 27. Mm -hmm. And many interpret this as a statement by which Jesus implicitly identifies himself as the one who has basically affected the defeat of the prince of demons as evidenced by his ability to cast out demons. And we see this brought out more clearly, I think, in the parallels in Matthew 12, 28 and Luke eleven twenty. 20. Uh, Matthew says, if I, by the spirit of God, mm-hmm. cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so Jesus argues that his exorcisms demonstrate not the influence of the prince of demons, right. but rather the presence and power of the kingdom of God. Right. Yeah, and that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. And it makes sense with his whole set of arguments. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So he's refuting their accusation. Right. Absolutely. All right. And so moving on, you, you talk about the, the, this connection between the Holy Spirit that they talk about and then this mm-hmm. demon spirit. Can yeah. you t- flesh that out for us? Well, there seems to be something of a disconnect, it seems to me, between the whole idea of the accusation that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons and Jesus is refuting that. And then we have just a statement that says, you know, um, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven but has committed an eternal mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's not it's not really made clear why Jesus is warning the scribes against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark explains the comment in verse thirty by saying they had for they had said he has an unclean spirit. Right. So, so again, this was this familiar spirit or this unclean spirit that they were they were saying Jesus used that unclean spirit as his means of casting out demons, and so therefore he was guilty of of acting under the influence of an unclean spirit and deserved to be stoned to death well but again where's the connection with the holy spirit well i think we're meant to understand what is made more explicit in that matthew parallel in matthew 12 28 that it was by the spirit of god that jesus was casting out demons so if you pull that in it would seem to appear then that the scribes were guilty of blaspheming the holy spirit and that they attributed jesus ability to cast out demons demons which came from the spirit of God right, to, to the prince so, of demons. Right, so you've got this, yeah, so it leads to that kind of next step. You, you are attacking, right. you're attacking the Holy Spirit when you make this accusation, right. which is right. this unforgivable right. sin. They accuse him of blasphemy and he throws it back like in their face. He throws it back yeah. in their face. I want to ask a technicality here. I am assuming that the... The, the, the spirit, the word used in Holy Spirit is indeed the same word for un, in, used in unclean spirit. Yep, okay. it is, it is, it is. Yeah, pneuma, pneuma okay. is, the, is the word. And so unclean spirit would be akathertos, akatherton, pneuma akatherton, and Holy Spirit would be pneuma hagion. 
Okay. You know? Okay. And so Just wanting to clarify that, you know, sometimes when we translate into English, we are translating into the same English word, but mm. it's not the same Greek word. So I wanted to clarify yep, that. It is the same. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's keep going. For me, it's always seemed strange. And, you know, so, so that connection is, is a little bit difficult between the blaspheming the Holy Spirit and accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons. But if we pull in the parallel from Matthew, it seems to help. But it's always been strange to me that Jesus said that this particular sin was considered an eternal one that cannot be forgiven. And there's no explanation given for that, really. Here. It's just Jesus. It's just a pronouncement that mm-hmm. Jesus makes. Yeah, yeah. And some have, you know, I guess perhaps the best way of explaining this that I found is that the implication is that their attitude was basically refusing to acknowledge that God was manifesting God's self and His reign in and through Jesus. And 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 so mm-hmm. you know, they uh, one commentator, uh, Robert Gulick, in his uh, commentary on Mark in the Word series, says they were attributing to Satan God's redemptive activity in Jesus through the work of the Spirit. So I mean. You know, I guess, again, the idea is they come to him and accuse him of blasphemy, um, basically. Mm-hmm. That's a guilt and, and a blasphemy that's worthy of stoning. And he basically says, no, you're the ones who've committed the real blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And um, so, again, we have to finish the sandwich. We can't leave ourselves um, without a bun. You, you don't want <laughs> half a sandwich, right? So, so yeah, the passage concludes with the second part of the Mark and Sandwich. Um, and, and so, basically, Mark here completes the story that he began mm-hmm. this section with. And, and here he specifies that it is Jesus' mother's, mother and brothers who came to retrieve him. And in response, of course, Jesus declares that his true brother and sister and mother is whoever does the will of God. Now, one of the things we might not catch is that this was really a common theme in the ancient world, whether yeah. we're talking about Jewish um, Jewish um, religion or, or Greco-Roman religion, you know, those who would attempt to lead one away from devotion to God, whoever your God may be, were to be avoided. And those who practiced devotion to God were one's true family. This was a commonplace in ancient literature. And so, again, it may seem strange to our ears, but it probably wasn't anything Earth break, earth shattering, or groundbreaking, mm-hmm. you know, for Jesus to say this because this would have been something they would have presupposed. Now, uh, part of the situation here, I think, is that we can probably presuppose that um, Mark's community had experienced the loss of family due to True. their commitment yeah, to Christ. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, their family ties, especially those who came from a Jewish context, but even those who came from a Gentile context, you know, because they refused that they would no longer either follow the Jewish tradition of the synagogue the way it was taught traditionally, or because they would no longer offer sacrifices to the pagan gods, right. you know, one way or the other, this would, this would have affected a break with their families. And so perhaps it seems likely that one of the reasons why Mark includes this is not only to help us understand, you know, just the sort of the, the, the slap in the face that all of this is to Jesus, mm-hmm. but also the fact that Mark's community probably experienced this personally. This was meant to assure them, I think, um, that they may have lost their their biological families, but they did have a family of faith, right. and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, by being connected yeah. to Jesus, yeah, that makes sense. they were on the right path. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, 
I think one of my last questions is, you know, we've we've talked about the sandwich. Uh, why why would Bark put it together this way? What, what's your theory on that? Well, again, I think I think it sort of enhances sort of the shock value of the fact that uh, you have uh, these two things. Jesus' own family misunderstands him mm-hmm. and tries to sort of save him from himself. Mm-hmm. But then you have the scribes who are sort of the official interpreters of the Torah. I mean, mm-hmm. they are the ones who have the, they're, they're, they're sort of seen as the authorities on interpreting the law. And they're declaring this man has broken the law and deserves to be stoned in effect. Mm-hmm. And, and so those are both pretty, pretty intense things. Yeah. And, and so I think it's sort of either it's, it's meant to soften the blow perhaps that Jesus own family mm-hmm. uh, rejected him, or maybe it's meant to enhance the shock value of the fact that, Oh my gosh, right. not only was Jesus opposed by the Jewish religious leaders, but his own family went well, after him. And thinking about reading along and you don't have the, you know, the, don't have the background of the, of the birth narratives. And you, you read this and you're reading everything he's doing. And yeah, I think as a reader, for a first time reader, I always try to put myself in their right, shoes. Right. Um, I think this would make it clear to me really what he was doing was that big of a deal. Well, it, yeah. and it, it makes it very clear that the level of, of opposition against Jesus was very high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that that helps put it into, it, it kind of, as a reader, it kind of just slaps you in the face. Well, and I think, I think you know, one of the things, and this is something, frankly, I have not noticed before, and I've, I've studied Mark for, you know, academically and professionally for like 25 years. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's surprising to me that they can make this serious of a charge so early, apparently, in Jesus' ministry. And it's not until much later that they're able to finally make mm-hmm. good on, you know, their, their conspiracy to destroy Jesus, mm-hmm. to, to, to execute Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, this, this, ac- this accusation would have been enough to get him stoned. But he's, but he's out in Galilee, right. you know. I mean, it's not really until he gets to Jerusalem right. that he becomes a bigger threat. And I can only imagine, you know, I well, can only imagine, the, oh, there's this troublemaker out here. Fine, take care of it. I want to mess with it. Until you in the seat of power. When Luke tells us the story of Jesus going to Nazareth and teaching in the synagogue, he says well, that they true. took him out to stone him. Well, no, that's true. That, well, so, that's true. Well, and, so, yeah, true. I mean, so stoning didn't have to be an official act well, of the Sanhedrin. Of it could have been just done by a mob. And I think that, I think they were trying to do that. I think that they, I think what Matt Mark is, is telling us here is that these, these scribes, I mean, we've already, we've already heard the Pharisee and the, and the Herodians are looking for a way to destroy him. They're conspiring mm-hmm, against him. Mm-hmm. So these, these, these people are trying to get him killed. Right. And they're trying to, to incite the people perhaps of Capernaum against Jesus to take him out yeah. and stone him. Yeah. And they yeah. fail on this occasion. They do fail. But yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of surprising to me because this is a very serious accusation that they make against Jesus. <laughs> All right. We'll Thanks, Christy. We're back, friends, and uh, I'm going to invite Christy to give us some historical background on all of these ideas. Sure, sure. So Alan, of course, gives us the background and through the church fathers, but... Um, 
once the church, and I need to put this in a context for you to understand kind of the history um, in terms of, of demonology uh, that occurs during the Middle Ages, but it takes us really back to the fall of Rome um, when the church kind of um, becomes the governing body, but, but we've also, if you will, go back to considering this the dark age. Now, most historians don't like dark age anymore, but there is a time when learning really does fall and your average person's really not learning to read at all. And what we begin to emerge, even in the early Middle Ages, is um, a separate kind of, of, of uh, popular piety that is separate from what is going on in the church. Meanwhile, the church is starting to... Um, increasingly take control over practices that have started to become very localized because once Rome falls, the church is the only stabilizing piece and they're, but they are slow, if you will, at kind of getting control over this, this now very changed European landscape. Yes. My understanding is event initially there were powerful bishops in various regions of the Mediterranean world that, that perhaps, and the, and the practices in each area would have been determined by that bishop. Exactly. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the kind of uniform, that you would see, that you would expect that, across the exactly, whole Catholic Church. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so you get p- pockets of uniformity for ex- Gregory the Great, for example. Um, and then with Charlemagne, you get another, Charlemagne's uh, and their Missi Dominici, these, uh, these people that would go out and, and, and kind of check on the outer reigns. He was another piece, but we'd see another set of invasions come in and that kingdom falls apart. Um, so you get these, you get kind of these waves and waves and waves of division in the Middle Ages. And, of course, you get to the whole feudal system. And, you again, you get these pockets of, of, of control, political control, and, frankly, regional, um, regional church control. It's really not until the High Middle Ages with the Lateran Council that you begin to get something, 1215, we begin to get some semblance of, of control over the church. And that's where things like the seven sacraments are, are made to be, you know, doctrine of the church. Um, things, some of the things we assume are, are Roman Catholic doctrine. But what's important here is even though the church is doing this, there's this like doctrine side and there's popular piety. And what the people believe is really different from what the church believes. For example, uh, folks then weren't getting married in the church. There was the marriage was practiced outside twelfth, fourth Lateran Council. Church begins to take control over marriage. You have to have a witness so we can guarantee that you're married in the church. Um, you know, you weren't going to mass every day. You were expected to show up once a year and do penance. In terms of the context of of, of demonology, then there's this kind of um, at least initially in the, in the church, it really wasn't a big a big deal. There really wasn't a worry that you weren't saved. If you're baptized, you went and got your ba- baby baptized on Easter, and that <laughs> might be the one day you showed up, and and then you were really confident that the that the the ecclesial people were doing their job, which was to pray. The grace that was coming to you through the church was exactly. going to be effective in your salvation. Exactly, yeah. and so it it just wasn't that that big of a worry. But I think um, a couple things happened. One, another piece starting were um, this, the whole emphasis, again, beginning with 1215 of the penitential cycle within the church. This is taking more over how you are saved. 
So that's one piece in the doctrine of purgatory, which emerges at this time, which then is trying to get you to, hey, you need to come in and you need to come in and tell us your sins. And then we need to be able to give you penance. So people become more aware of of the sinning in their life. So there's more concern begins to continually grow of, am I saved? Yeah. It begins slowly. Still probably not, um, not a huge concern. Um, but when, until you get to the high middle ages and then there's uh, the, the death is so extreme that I think people really do start to wonder, oh my gosh, am I cursed by God? And there's, there's three things that we look to as historians that are huge. One, of course, is um, the Hundred Years' War. Um, and I can't even imagine what it must have been like to in, in experience that. I mean, because you think about a hundred years, you know, that could be four generations of your family, yeah, four, exactly. four or five generations of your family Involving aff- in, infe- affected by this yeah. war. This war and the sieges and the battles. Um, thir- so 1337 to 1416, and if you've taken your Western Civ, you know it's over 100 years. <laughs> do, you, do your math. All right, that's happening. And then we get the plague, the first instance of the plague in 1347. We are knocking out 50% of the European population. Um, and 50% die if it changes, and it does, just like our coronavirus mutates, and it goes into the nomadic kind, 90% of the people are getting it. It's knocking out entire towns. Mm-hmm. But unlike today, they don't know why, and they assume it's a curse of God. Then on top, yeah, they of, didn't have microscopes to be able to understand how viruses work or bacteria. Mm-hmm. They didn't even understand that it was it was the it was the 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 the, the insects on rats that were carried right. to to um, uh, Europe on on trade ships that was that was doing this exactly exactly they they don't know um, there are a few people out there who are have some theories about it but it's we, we've seen this with Ebola when it came up oh gosh God is cursing us I mean we you could see how an uneducated mind in particular can jump to this um, and when you don't have the science even more can jump to this conclusion and so and then there's another piece, um, which is the schism of the church, which I think I talked to before, where you remember you have the Avignon papacy, and then you at, where it moves to France, and mm-hmm. then there's a division as they elect a pope also in Rome. So there so, are two popes at one time. And they're excommunicating <laughs> each other, and they're excommunicating <laughs> the people under them. Right. <laughs> so imagine you wonder, as you get to starting to hear about this, you wonder, well, am I excommunicated? So all these pieces are leading to this kind of intensified sense of, of am I saved or not saved? And, and, well, and, and, I would and think, good and evil. I would think they would feel very vulnerable to the power of evil in the world. Ex- exactly. Because they didn't really have that sense of security under the umbrella of the church Exactly. Anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And so... The, as as when evil kind of opens its eyes to you, then then you kind of you kind of are become aware of it, and so then popular piety takes off, and so this whole bunch of demonology begins to emerge. This is where All Hallows Eve becomes a really big part of the culture, right? I mean, where all the demons come out, and the, and we see in the artwork just the real. Um, 
the real belief that these evil spirits are actually present. and Everywhere, right? And, right. So this kind of picks up in popular culture. So popular culture can latch on to anything they hear when they feel that evil's in charge. And they're questioning a world right now where, well, if God's punishing us, or is it another force? Mm, yes. Something else. And, and that something else became... Satan. That something else became Satan, yeah. right? This this kind of per- continues to perpetuate itself because this is the world that Luther would have been steeped in. It's well, there. I mean, Heiko Obermann's a famous uh, historian. It's past now, but you know, he wrote this whole thing: Luther between God and devil. Mm-hmm. So Luther's really his world is really impacted by this kind of dualism that that emerges out of this late middle ages. Yeah. And we should probably pause and, and point out that, that, you know, while it's maybe presupposed today, the, the you know, th- that this time period was the time when, when this concept of Satan as, as, as an enemy of God, perhaps as omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent mm-hmm. as God, you know, as a rival to God mm-hmm. really becomes a part of Christian culture, particularly mm-hmm. through the writings of Dante Alighieri and John Milton. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And of course, most people out there are familiar with, you know, the Divine Comedy and specifically the Inferno, because we're all intrigued by his levels nine of levels of hell and all these wonderful <laughs> imagery that he draws for us. And people are really drawn to that. And uh, and so it becomes part of kind of accepted as, as kind of part of the the world and of course he does it and if you've read it you know he takes the characters of the day and he puts them into their mm-hmm. appropriate levels as he sees it and so it has a realism about it even though it's a fictional kind of piece mm-hmm. um that people oh that people kind of draw into that's how it works well that's it's kind of it's interesting that, that it's that it's um, you know to some extent um, i i see the trilogy the the uh, his divine comedy as a, an, an epic poem it is, yeah and, and, yeah. and so is John Milton's Paradise Lost. So right. they both use poetry to sort of codify all of the popular speculations that, that sort of coalesced into this image of a Satan or a devil exactly. in the Christian mind. Exactly. And, um, you know, this is also where we get the rise of witchcraft, mm. which is our our, our um are possessed by the devil. Mm-hmm. And so you get this rise. And so the the great manual for witches, the Malleus Maleficarum, comes up, I think, in like 1437, something like that. So it's a it, it's we're still, you know, right at, right before Luther is right. born. So people are out looking for and attacking witches. You also see in the Middle Ages the rise of the Inquisition. Mm. And again, the Inquisition, we are looking for heretics and maybe people that are possessed by right. the devil. Right. So you get all of this kind of paranoia built up within the context of the church and what moves from popular piety and then kind of expands itself. And I think it makes sense as the Reformation comes over and takes kind of more control over, if you will, your general population yet. You know, you need to learn to read. You need to be involved in church. You need to be praying every day where our medieval people were coming to church once a month. Now this all kind of comes together, right? So, and no wonder that when Luther sees the, the, the first people really coming to church, not fully understanding the true gospel, because they kind of have their own 
own way of functioning in the world, their own way of appeasing the devils as mm. they see it. Their own. The well, yeah, they had. Gospel. I'm sure they had their their own traditional practices for warding off demons. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, magic as it's it's known as magic. It's been mm-hmm. it's been around for centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you call it magic or astrology or whatever mm-hmm. you call it. I mean, basically, it was a means of trying to protect oneself right. from the evil that is lurking out there and could strike you at any right. random minute. So we're going to push ahead here. He has brought up, actually, um, uh, in my mind, a pretty famous uh, historical piece by a, a historian named Keith Thomas. It's called Religion and the Decline of Magic. And what happens is, as we move, obviously, 15th century, where Luther is, 16th century, the beginnings of the scientific revolution, and we're going to suddenly see the magic kind of pushed aside as, as being the explanation for how things work, pushed aside for scientific reasons. This is all coming together at, at the same mm, time, yeah. though. So by the time we get to Calvin, Calvin Calvin doesn't buy into the the language as much as Luther does. Um it, well, that's good to know. It, it is because he's kind of moving, moving ahead. I mean, remember Calvin? It's a sovereignty of God, right? So Satan, as a separate right. evil power, doesn't fit within the context. As a of, separate, as a separate evil god, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. So in in Calvin's world, when we're talking about about sin and and Satan's position, it's it. it it's really Satan's very weak. Um, mm. it, it, it really is. I, I would almost, I would almost wager to say it's it's kind of a, a figment of the imagination about mm. falling away from God. Um, and there's this sense of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, really, as um, that he talks about is not something that is that's devil oriented, right? It's simply. You have stepped away from a space of, of being united with God. It, it, mm. it, he even suggests if if you if you can even think that you might be forgiven, you're probably not in this in that space. Well, and you know when when I've when I've tried to deal with this question that has come to me, what is the unforgivable sin? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, I've said the only unforgivable sin I can imagine is final and ultimate rejection of God's unconditional love. And, and, you know, I, I don't understand that, how that could happen even. Right, I, right. Uh, but, but in my mind, you know, if God is sovereign, then that, that can only be the ultimate, that can only be the right, only right. unforgivable sin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's bizarre to us because we keep thinking, but uh, we keep thinking, but will he forgive me? The, in, in, in Calvin's view, People aren't even asking that question if they can be forgiven. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a space that they don't care. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's who we are as humans. So it can lead us to some of those great theological question marks because I think as humans, we always want to be forgiven, but but maybe not. And, and, and at least in, in Calvin's mind, unbel- it's not ignorance. Ignorance is one thing, and that's very mm-hmm. forgivable. It's mm-hmm. those who have it, are evil-intentioned resist God's truth. Yeah. Um, so they know, they know, they know the truth. Yeah. yeah, they know the truth, um, and they can't claim ignorance because ignorance is, is there's hope in, in ignorance. Um, those who repudiate and impugn the word of God, these are those who blaspheme against the Spirit since they strive against the illumination that is the work of the Holy Spirit. So they have the knowledge and they reject it. Yeah, I mean, they don't 
care. I, I, I'm having trouble getting that there because it seems like, well, if they knew they would care. And I think that's where uh-huh. we're at. He associates that with a reprobate, right? Mm-hmm. That makes sense with that, that context is, is that these are people that they're just not in a church. They're just not in that space not connected to god not connected to god exactly exactly and 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 intentionally disconnected from god and intentionally disconnected right of course and they wrap some of this in then into as they're in their time frame as they they're liking well so these are the people that are that that are taking people off um into false beliefs and 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 these are people that that aren't accepting the truth of god these are people that heretics and therefore those would be the people that would be described that you might use a descriptor as, as being possessed by Satan. Uh. But the thing is, it's more of just a description of, of separation from God is how I, how I read it. Yeah, this kind of rejection of God. Not that Satan has Satan's own, et, own agency to right. fight it per se. Right. So he, he kind of went to that, you know, the, this Satan divided, a house divided, Satan dividing Satan doesn't make any sense any sense it was kind of that that same that same sense the only way to def- defeat evil is god mm-hmm. and so that was part of the the context well and that seems to be the part of the point of the new testament it seemingly is that um the powers of evil in the world did their worst in taking jesus to the cross and in 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 going to the cross and in and then in overcoming the powers of death by the by the resurrection Christ defeated the powers of evil and stripped them of their power. And, and so, you know, um, you know, if there is a Satan out there, Mm -hmm. that, that person, that, that personification of evil is a defeated power. Calvin actually goes quite into detail with this in the institutes. There's probably, and it's in book three, I think there's like five sections that really deal with um, the idea of sin for which there is no repentance. Mm. Um, so I thought that was, and as I said, we defined what that was, but he does spend a lot of time with this. And this is one of the texts. Now, remember, they don't really look as highly on Mark as they do right. on Matthew and Luke. So, right. but he does, he does acknowledge Mark in there. And if you read the whole piece, because they're also collapsed, it, it does fit within that context that we just said. Um, I have outlined in my, in my place, he says specifically, there is no place for pardon where knowledge is linked with unbelief. Mm. Yeah. Um, so again, this was a knowing rejection of. of it's a knowing. The, the it's gospel. a knowing rejection of the gospel, um, and and this idea of you can't return once you've rejected it, deliberately rejected it, which is really interesting mm-hmm. for us because I think we always think there's hope, but I think mm-hmm. Calvin would say, yeah, but if you even had that inkling of of fire still in you to go back to the church, there'd be forgiveness there. I mean, I, and so that's that that bark in the in the sand by which you know <laughs> not crossing the Riv- rubicon river you're not gonna you know you can't cross right. it once you cross there you're done wow you can't come back wow that's how i read it so yeah. um he, he he likens it to esau and the loss of his birthright sure. for example wow. so that's one of the pieces that that's he, pretty final yeah 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 exactly so and i thought it end today just um with my, my, my section here, thinking about, uh, you all know, a mighty fortress. And I think that gives you an idea of Luther there. And I just wanted to, this is the second verse of that, I think. And through this world with devils filled, there it is. Through this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. 
We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And of course, that word is Jesus. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and, you know, I've, I've grown up singing this song. And I don't know that I've ever really even th- thought about this. But, you know, the implications of this. Is the world really filled with devils that threaten to undo us? Mm-hmm. Um, is, the, is there a, a prince of darkness who is grim, who, who rages against us? Um, uh, you know, if, if there is a prince of demons, this, this is a created entity and does not have the properties exactly. of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. Satan right. can't be in two places at one time. So then you have this whole cadre of devils exactly. that fill the world, right? This is, this is Luther's world. Yeah. And I think... Unfortunately, I think it's also the world the, the worldview of many people still today. I, I agree. I agree. And let's talk about that when we come back. Yes, indeed. Hi, friends. We're back, and Christy and I were talking in the break, and uh, I'm going to pose to her a situation uh, regarding this passage. To me, it seems like this passage is a perfect opportunity to kind of help our congregations uh, come to a better understanding of um, how do we understand evil in the world. Uh, because, as we mentioned at the at the conclusion of the last section, you know, seeing this world is filled with devils, and and seeing us seeing ourselves uh, at the mercy of a prince of darkness that rages against us, you know, that leaves us in a very vulnerable and a very um, um, precarious place. And I don't think that's the point of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So um, here's the situation I have found myself in, and and you know, I've been in my congregation. I'm in my seventh year. Uh, it'll be seven years, August 1st. And um, I was recently doing a book study with some of my folks, and they asked me about, about Satan. And my view of Satan is this, that there is no clear biblical teaching about Satan. We have a lot of, of ideas expressed in the New Testament, but it's, I don't think that the theology of Satan that most people hold today was was formed in the biblical ages. It was it was it was formed in the church throughout history, mm-hmm. both in the starting in the patristic era and culminating in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. as Christie laid out. And so so and I got, I got pushback from that, you know, friendly pushback. I mean, most of these folks have grown up in a church where they have been taught that there is a devil out there who is out to get them and that mm-hmm. their, their, their afflictions, their troubles, their trials in this life come from this Satan. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, it's hard to buck that just centuries of church tradition. So I guess I want to pose to Christy, how do, how does a lowly preacher like myself, you know, <laughs> try to try to help his congregation or her congregation um, come to a better headspace about all this demonology stuff. Interesting. I, you know, as you're saying that, um, 
oddly enough, I do think we can look to Luther for some help with that because even though Luther did believe in those evil spirits, and that was part of his, I think he really dealt, tried to deal with it in his mind, you know, but he, he tried to tell people that when you put yourself in that space and when you're constantly looking at the evil, you're not looking at God's grace and you're not looking at God's love. And so you're kind of self-defeating yourself by, I mean, that's the sin coming in is your sin is entrapping yourself and worried about Satan instead of just celebrating God and, and, and being one of God's creatures. And so, so your life becomes caught up with looking everywhere you, everywhere you look, it's, it's where's the evil or looking at things that happen in your life is obviously that came from the devil instead of saying, Oh my gosh, this has been a hard time in my life. Where is God walking with me in it? And it, so it's, it's part of that, that mindfulness um, that, that we should be getting from our practices, uh, from our spiritual practices, but it's hard to get people to see that because it's easy to explain away evil or things that are bad by some other force. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. There's two <laughs> forces going on. And hey, that explains that explains why something bad happened. Um, but then, then your life becomes, I mean, I, I think this is part of the, the sin. Then your life becomes part of this whole entrapment. I, I think that's the evil itself. And you're entrapped in, in, in bad thoughts instead of, instead of the joy of Christ and saying, hey, you know, looking for that where, where God is present. And in fact, I, I've been working with some of the, you know, the spiritual practice, the, uh, Ignatius Loyola, um, that, you know, as you are, um, kind of looking at your own life and where is God present today? And there's practices of looking for that instead of spending your time where looking for Satan where the Satan is. Satan threatening is. me. Yeah. 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 As you, as you're talking there, it's, it occurs to me, you know, it, to me, it seems like the issue is faith versus fear. I agree. Because it seems to me that this whole fully developed demonology with a full-blown Satan and a whole, you know, world filled with devils that threaten to undo us, this is an expression of fear. Absolutely. And yet, and yet it, is, it is taken as, as a, a, a dogma that is considered to be absolutely true. And, you know, to me, fear, you know, using some of the language you were reflecting from the reformers, fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the obstacle to faith. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that, that fear is always bad. I mean, because fear is a natural human emotion. But if we see our whole reality, if we see our whole lives uh, as under the shadow of evil, mm-hmm. and, and, and we live in that space of constant fear of the devil um you know it really does kind of cut into the vitality of our our faith in god because you know if if we take to me the biblical view of god is that god reigns supreme Mm -hmm. there is no rival that can stand against God's kingdom. Right. There is no right. rival that can prevail right. against God's reign. And and Jesus came to demonstrate that. And, and that was part of the whole point of his miracles and his exorcisms was to demonstrate right. that all he has to do is say the word and 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 he, you know, he prevails over over the whatever evil there may be mm-hmm. at work in people's lives. And, and um and so to me, the Christian gospel, the Christian message is essentially one of, of, of faith 
and grace mm -hmm. and victory that 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 whatever evil there is in the world and I, you know i'm not one i'm not one to say there is no evil in the world because i think that would be right. almost pollyannish right. there is lots of evil in this world um where it comes from you know is a is a is a profound theological mystery right but um um the fact that there is evil in this world is very clear um and yet the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has defeated, defeated. the powers of evil well, decisively. You know, I keep thinking about evil as you're talking about it. And what is evil? Evil are the things that somehow challenge our personhood. I mean, when you come down right to it, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of the things or the things that that hinder my my freedom, hinder, hinder my 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 physical body hinder my mind hinder um, my life my life yeah. exactly and so the fear is that these are somehow going to invade that space mm -hmm. so it's really it's it's that they are the demons of, of of death right in a way which again we believe in eternal life so we've overcome that i'm going to tell this story because i think this is interesting um because we have a natural fear of death because we have a, as human beings because we don't know what happens and so this is just built in. And sure. as you work with people in your churches, you know, people or particularly like if you work in a hospital and you run into people with no faith, you realize death is terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and I had this experience and I attribute my faith to it, but I have a heart issue. And when I was done with the surgery, the nurse came in in tears and another nurse followed and, Oh honey, we're so sorry this happened to you. And we almost lost you. And uh, I started laughing, actually. <laughs> it was kind of funny, I think, because I, 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 maybe it really pushed my own challenge, my own faith, because I was like, well, if God wants me now, I guess he could have me, you know? <laughs> but it, it struck me as just really, it, I did, I started laughing, because mm. I thought, well, why would God send me to, to seminary and to work in the church and then take me now. It just it right. struck me as funny. Right. But, but, and that was just a purely natural response. But I know that when we've been with people that understand that, um, th 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 eternal life and they understand the defeat of death, they're not afraid they're of not it. Afraid. Um, and they're not worried about devils mm -hmm. and evil spirits because their faith, their faith takes, takes all that space. And, you know, I don't want to say that people who believe in the devil um, in this way don't have faith in God. Oh, they do, I because think. Because I think they do. But, um, you know, I, I it's almost, you know, Yaroslav Pelikan said it, I think. He said that this kind of, this kind of thinking developed out of their experience of sin and temptation. And so there are some thoughts, there are some temptations, there are some experiences that we have that are so troubling to us that we have to locate the origin mm -hmm. of that outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I, to me, when I've, t when I've tried to dialogue with people who are just very committed to the idea of, yes, there really is a Satan, yes, there really is a devil, it, it seems like they, they really are, are tied to that idea that the things within themselves that they find so disturbing, they, they need to be able to attribute that to someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, they can't wrap their heads around the possibility that, 
they could have evil within themselves. Right. You know, I, I've said it. I've said it this way. You know, humanity is capable of great cruelty, mm-hmm. and humanity is capable of great kindness. Right. And all of us have probably participated in a little of both. Hopefully, more right. kindness than right. cruelty. But right. If I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have all done things that were wrong, and we can't say anybody made us do it. We chose to do it on our own accord. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, but, but it's hard for some people to come to that place of being able to say, yeah, I did that, because they don't want to admit it. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, they don't want to just so. believe that about I themselves. I think so. I think so. Um, I guess I've always preferred to think of, of the origin of evil as simply the absence of God, not mm-hmm. as a separate force, but being unaware or just being absent from or in that space where we are given, you know, in the, in the fall, are we given that choice there? Um, yeah. Did it, these origins are there. Well, that and I to be see, my take on it. I see a lot of it, you know, like for example, a lot of the things that I consider evil are the violence in the world, the malicious, um, injustice, just the terrible oppression yeah, that, that powerful people can inflict on others. And to me, that is, that is, you know, they have chosen to misuse uh, whatever power they have for their own sakes and for their own gain or, or you know, to the detriment of, of those who are weaker than them. And, and, you know, there is malice in that, I think. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is. Well, and it fuels itself, right? It, mm-hmm. But the fear fuels itself, too. It so even if it's just a fear, I mean, all of this, all of this negative energy just mm-hmm. builds and builds and builds and builds, it and does. then it does take on its own power. It, I suppose, in a way, it takes on its own, its own identity. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think of, you know, I, I feel like one of the few places you get the a regular message of hope and promise is the church. And mm-hmm. I think that's why our discipline is so important because we are going to be challenged by these things. We're all going to be tempted by these things. We're all going to be, um, when something bad happens, we're going to say, it was, maybe it was Satan. That's part of kind of how we're built. Well, and I, to me, know? as I said, to me, I think it's just hard for us to wrap our hands around the fact that some sometimes even the people we love can do such terrible things to us yeah 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 Yeah, true and how do you make sense of that yeah i think sometimes too and which is a whole different space is um that sometimes people do things that aren't necessarily part of their intent Mm -hmm. and maybe illness i mean illness can do a lot and and so there's some some spaces there that we're aware of also well Um, I, i will say this when people push me into a corner and they say you know, well, what about this passage and what about this passage? Mm-hmm. The, the, the place I go is, look, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. There is no fourth article right. of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in Satan right. and demons and all these other things. Yeah. You know, the Nicene Creed, you know, there's no place in the Nicene Creed. These are the foundational right. affirmations of the Christian faith. And and there's no space there for any of that. Now, That's I'm true. sure you can find some of that in the Reformation creeds. You can find some some sort of demonology in some of those statements. But but when it comes down to it, 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and, and in his only Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. And so, I, you know, I think we can't, this is where we started. We, we, you know, you started by saying it was ironic that we're going from Trinity Sunday to this passage. And so the, here's the question, you know, do we really believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, you know, all three are ruling this world with love and grace and mercy, and who are working in their... Um, all-powerful way to transform this world uh, into the kingdom of God, or do we believe that there is this, you know, world out there that is filled with devils that threaten to undo us and a, and a prince of darkness that is raging against us constantly? Uh, to me, I'm going to pick the first. I'm going to go with Trinity. Right. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I did happen to pull up the Westminster Catechism here, and it, it's mentioned, Satan's mentioned four times. Um, and so that Satan is associated directly with sin, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, ourselves and all mankind being the nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. Mm-hmm. So there definitely is a personification of of Satan in 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 these, which may explain how it ca- came down to us that sure. way. They took what was what was kind of vague terminology and adopted it as as kind of a a root identity. And yet, I think a push came to shove. Satan creature, whatever they're identifying here, would um, would fizzle out. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, they yep. would say, but it, but, but it doesn't really have that much the, power. So. The, the theological and biblical foundations for a, a full-blown demonology and a full-blown understanding of Satan as a personification of evil don't hold up. Right, right, exactly. And unfortunately, many of the people in our churches, when they were going through confirmation, they had to memorize the Westminster Catechism. Probably did. So it has <laughs> it has become it has become part of our our language, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And that, there, as we just have pointed out, there's there's a lot of problems with this yeah. in a, in a lot of ways because our foundational documents don't have that in there. You know, the the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, um, in, in this particular way. But uh, but it does come come through later, um, in that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. as I said, when push comes to shove, I'm going to stick with Trinity. And, and I, I, agree. I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And uh, I, I think also reminding people where they're concentrating, kind of Luther's again, yeah. where should your, where are you going to focus your energy? Are you yeah. going to focus it on fighting evil? Or are you going to focus it on serving God? One of the things yes. I love about being a Presbyterian is, in my understanding, our theological starting point is God's grace. God's, yeah. God's yeah. sovereign grace. And, and when you start with that as your theological starting point, it makes a huge mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. And to me, if, if, if God is all sovereign and God is all gracious, you know, there really isn't much room for, for this, this full-blown demonology and, and Satanology that you, you find in, in, even in the mighty fortresses of our God. Right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.